UK Motor Talk. The Goodwood Festival of Speed 2018. So here we are, the Silver Jubilee, the 25th Goodwood Festival of Speed. Let's see what we've got in store. Jim Baxter and myself, Mike Gates, are exploring the site and seeing what's going on. We've got 70 years of Porsche, Land Trover and Lotus and 60 years of the BTCC. Graham Benj has been checking out the high rolling items in the bottoms auction, Aston Martin 2 VEV, 2 VEV. We have rising stars Chris Smiley from the BTCC who has flown over from Northern Ireland and F1's hot talent George Russell for a chat in the Martini Drivers Club. More F1 with William Starr, an all-round nice guy, Robert Kubica, and Valtteri Bottas fresh from his F1 thrash up and down the hill. Plus, all the other stuff we get to see and enjoy over the weekend. So sit down, buckle up, and enjoy. outside in the in Martini garden here uh, with Robert Kubica. Robert, just to fly me, you have a reputation for being one of the, the friendliest guys in F1. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to meet you. Y you are, I believe, the, the first Polish driver in F1. That surprises me uh, and amazes me a bit, to be honest, because I have some, some Polish friends and they are absolutely car mad. I mean, you must have inspired a generation. Yeah, I mean, uh, about that I'm the most friendliest guy, I don't know. Uh, it's not... Uh, <laughs> I should uh, judge it, but uh, regarding uh, that I'm first Polish F1 driver, that's true. Nobody before achieved it, and uh, Poles are, they like cars. Uh, we had a great history, or great, good history of uh, rally drivers in the past, but racing drivers, uh, not, as, not as much, uh, honestly. There were a few drivers before me that they try some uh, single-seater racing, but uh, without big success. And uh, but now we have uh, quite a lot of young uh, karting drivers which are doing very well. So uh, it looks like uh, motorsport uh, in Poland is growing up. Uh, it is, uh, as you know, not the cheapest sport uh, in, in this planet, and probably this is a, a, a quite a big limitation for for our country. But also we don't have many circuits. We don't have uh, a lot of. Uh, teams, a lot of uh, knowledge about motorsport. So we are a young country in this sport, but uh, uh, as I said, young kids, uh, karting drivers, uh, which are racing in Europe, they are doing very well. So hopefully they will grow up in better way than I did. Uh, so you've obviously had a, uh, a very varied career so far, and you mentioned there are a couple of different disciplines, karting, rallying, as well as single-seaters, uh, and the fact that you've inspired, or you appear to have inspired, a, a range of younger drivers. Where did your inspiration for, for racing, how did you fall in love with cars? Well, I, I started very young, when I was five years old. Uh, it was a typical circumstances when you are a kid, we were having a walk on Sunday in afternoon uh, in city, uh, center of the town where I was born in Krakow and, uh, and there was a, a small car with a petrol engine, two gears uh, and I saw it and uh, we went into the shop and uh, the lady allowed me to get in and I stayed in that car for six hours uh, so uh, I didn't want to really jump out so my parents uh, show, uh, for, for sure understood that uh, I really like it but you know uh, I got that car uh, a few days later and uh, it started like this. I, I started uh, 
spending every single moment with this car. Uh, then afterwards I get the uh, first kart uh, when I was six years old and uh, I still start racing uh, uh, only when I was 10 because this was uh, a minimum age in Poland to get a license. So uh, 95 was my first season in karting in Poland. Then uh, I moved to international races in 98 when I was junior driver and uh, yeah. And then uh, slowly get get into Formula One, uh, which for sure uh, it's not an easy task. But uh, yeah, uh, I think nobody was thinking that uh, anyone from Poland could achieve it. Actually, when we were going to try trying to get some money and budget uh, for single seaters, people were laughing uh, that we were talking that potentially we we might have a chance to get into the top of, uh, we were not talking about Formula 1, but the top level of motorsport uh, categories, because uh, motorsport is, uh, yes, Formula 1 is the highest level and highest category, but uh, there are different uh, motorsport professional motorsport categories in the world. You mentioned your karting there. You karted against Rosberger Hamilton, and Hamilton actually referred to you as uh, sort of his greatest adversary in karting. Um, I just wondered who's been your fiercest competitor, and also who's inspired you most, not necessarily just through your karting, but through your, your driving career. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm from the same age as Luis, as Nico, so actually we were racing uh, since we were kids, since uh, 98 together. Uh, I think I had a uh, one of my best periods uh, of or years of, of my career was when I was karting in 98-99 in Italy and in European Championship I really won a lot of races and uh, uh, I was kind of the guy to beat uh, at, that st at that stage then uh, our careers did move a bit differently I switched to different single-seaters but uh, then we met again uh, I was a Lewis teammate in 2004 in Manor in Macau. Macau is a single race which is kind of world championship, one single event. Everybody from uh, strongest uh, drivers from each national championship uh, going to Macau and we were teammates there uh, with Luis and uh, then we, we met uh, all of us uh, uh, in Formula 1, uh, Nico, myself and Luis. So uh, who was the, the most difficult one to race with? Uh, I think, yeah, Luis uh, was the one who who was always uh, nice to battle, but it, it was not an easy battle. And uh, and um, who was my inspiration, honestly, I didn't have one. Um, when I was karting, I had the uh, inspiration of Daniel Rossi, who was uh, many times world champion. Uh, he was also the guy who helped me to get an official and factory uh, drive in CRG, which is one of the biggest uh, kart manufacturers. Uh, without them, uh, I would probably not be here because uh, when I started racing in '98 in uh, international area, uh, we didn't have a budget to do all season. So uh, fortunately, I became the driver and uh, I was racing for free. So uh, this uh, had a big effect on my career. You seem to have a, uh, an amazing ability to, to recover physically from certain accidents and, uh, and get back up to speed. Obviously, the, the Andorra rally has been well documented, but it's not the, that's not the first really severe injury you've had to yourself over the years, is it? I believe you, you broke your arm in the early noughties. Well, yeah, but it was over 20 years ago, so <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not that uh, I'm the one who is crashing and uh, have ability to 
uh, to recover. Uh, I have, uh, as most probably uh, everybody who f uh, who suffer accident, uh, some injuries. Uh, actually, the accident you mentioned was a road car accident, so nothing to do with the sport. I was a passenger in a road car, so uh, uh, it really. Uh, but it had a few small effect on my career uh, because I have to skip uh, first three events of uh, Formula 3 Euro Series in 2003. But actually, when I got back in the first race of my Formula 3 career, uh, on my first uh, event, uh, I won my first race. So, uh, a debut race, I, I won it. So, uh, yeah, but it's not a, a way of uh, winning races that you have to hurt yourself <laughs> before and then uh, jump in. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. It's probably everybody knows I suffered a big accident in a rally in 2011. What's impressive is, is how dedicated you are and how quickly you can get back to form because there's, there's no question that you, you worked really hard at it. You've always worked really hard, but you've always managed to come back and at that high level. To us, it seems almost, almost straight away and that doesn't come easily. You know, if it happened to any of us, we could never recover anywhere near that quickly. Uh, and so well, you it's never deeply know. impressive. Yeah. You never know. It's, uh, you know, when... Uh, I think our uh, our body and uh, especially our brain has a huge potential, and uh, and uh, I think uh, you are transform transforming yourself into a warrior when something is going on yeah. and something go went wrong. And uh, the last six years were not easy, uh, but uh, a passion for this sport and uh, and a general motorsport passion, which I had since I'm a kid. Uh, helped me to to don't give up and to try to get back to F1 paddock. Fantastic. Just a slight change in pace here. But if I said to you now, you pick any car you like, we'll fly you to wherever you want to go tomorrow, what would it be and where would you go? Uh, yeah, probably it would be F1 car and I would go for a next race. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic answer. What a fantastic answer. Okay then, so it's a different question for you. If I said to you, any of the cars here... Yeah. Taking up the hill now, what would it be? I think I will. I will, I will take a, a rally car. Uh, I heard there is a very nice uh, rally stage, uh, but just for that, I'm not missing rallies at all. But uh, uh, yeah, I think current WRC cars are really uh, amazing to drive. So uh, yeah, I would like to have a go. Any other form of motorsport interest to you? Obviously, we've, you've done rallying, single-seater, karting, etc. Think a bit of Formula E and things like that. Have you thought about another series to have a look at, maybe longer term? Um, it's 60-year anniversary of the British Touring Cars uh, this year, so does, does British Touring Cars appeal to you, maybe something like that? I know very well Brit British Touring Car because actually there was uh, the only... Uh, motorsport races or race we could see in Polish television when I was young. Uh, so we, we, there was no way of watching Formula 1. And I remember one year there was one channel was showing the British Touring Car Championship. Uh, for example, it was, I, I don't know if, but I think it was something around 98 or 90, yeah, 98 or 97. But the championship was from two years before. So practically, I was watching 98 uh, in 98 the championship of 96. But uh, yeah, I was a young karting driver, and uh, actually, I love those races uh, because they are real races. You know, I don't know how it is now, but I assume it's the same. Touring cars are uh, uh, when once you have driven from one, they are 
not uh, as at attractive I would say because performance of the car once you try from one everything is slow uh, but racing in uh, touring car is really something which uh, we lack in Formula 1, you know, wheel-to-wheel, -wheel, uh, possibilities for overtaking and uh, uh, really a lot of action. So, uh, uh, but if I consider it, honestly, uh, my main target was to come back to Formula 1 uh, or, let's say, uh, to understand if I'm able to come back and uh, I did it. So, uh, I hope uh, to get a chance uh, of a drive. If not, then maybe I will have to uh, find something else to do and uh, one of the possibilities could be uh, World Endurance Championship uh, so uh, with LMP1 or something I did a test with uh, Ginetta in the beginning of the year uh, but it, it was getting too too tight with all schedules with uh, with uh, amount of the days we are spending in the factory on the races simulator uh, marketing events and uh, additionally putting up uh, full uh, uh, season in a different championship it's, it was really getting uh, too busy but uh, who knows you know uh, but the main target there stays uh, Formula 1 and uh, yeah we'll see later well we had a good uh, a good catch up with Chris Smiley from the touring cars yesterday on the BTC Norlin team so if you ever fancy a go in his car I'll, uh, I'll give him a buzz and you can have a go <laughs> All right. I'm sure okay. he'll let you I know you've got, you've got a lot to be, to be catching up on, a lot to do today, and, and there's a load of fans waiting for you outside. So all remains to say thank you so much for talking to you, Jim Coyer, thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you progress in the future. Thank you. So the Singer 911 is a car that people are, are really talking about. We're stood next to it now. The engine is on a podium on its own at the back, uh, superbly detailed as, as we normally see. Um, but the ceramic coating exhaust, we can actually see poking out from underneath the, the sort of uh, concept slash production, production model there. Now they're only going to make 75 of these cars, 35 of them sold before they actually built one. Uh, and the rest of them are, are almost certainly going to be sold by the time we reach the end of Goodwood, I'm sure, or certainly not long after. Perhaps for me, the most impressive feature is the rear window ducts. Now, these, it's difficult to see on, on the picture of the car, um, but the actual rear window itself is the air intake duct. Uh, it goes into a carbon fibre air box and into the top of the, uh, sort of the, the flat engine there, at the back boxer engine. It's absolutely draped in carbon fibre, but in a subtle way that sort of replicates the original plastic parts on the 911. The mix of modern materials such as carbon fibre and ceramic coated exhausts combined with a classic starling for the car really do add up to something special but for me it's the as you'd said the attention to detail on all the bits that you don't see never would see and chances are for most owners maybe only the mechanic would ever see them uh, but the fact that the attention to detail and the effort has been put into those bits really just is, is tribute to the whole car so if the bits you can't see are as good as that just imagine the bits you can see. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can see there are little more modern cues where there's been a bit of a variation from uh, from the traditional sort of Porsche on which it's based. I mean, so you've got a, a quite beefy rear diffuser, you've got a slightly larger ducktail spoiler on there as well. Obviously, a 500 brake horsepower engine as well, four litre, um, so a, a, a big old engine on there. I mean, otherwise, it, it does appear to be very much like a classic Porsche until you uh, until you sort of look inside. Now, the wheels are, are specially designed. They um, just tuck under the arches. So the wheels have got a fantastic fitment there, centre lockers uh, of course, and an alloy which, uh, which replicates original rims that you, you would you'd found on vehicles of the period. Um, now the people have been working with Williams Advanced Engineering 
And that's been a bit more local. The, carbon, the bodywork itself, though it's painted, is completely carbon fibre, so the whole car is I incredibly light. Now, we're just going to have a, a quick chat with the design director now, just find out a bit more about it. Hi, I'm uh, Imogen, I'm Specifications Director at Singer Vehicle Design. The DLS project is in partnership with Williams Advanced Engineering. The pursuit of this project was to get the best possible, most lightweight, high-performance Porsche 911 that uh, the world's seen. And just as an aside, just the most beautiful 911 that the world's ever seen, of course, actually arguably the best shape that the, the 911's ever worn. Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of challenges in, in bringing this to us, so basically for, for those that don't really know about the car, this is a, a classic shape, but with basically everything underneath is modern, it's all modern underpinnings and it's all the highest quality, isn't it? Yes, we have basically re-engineered all of the dynamic components using modern materials and manufacturing techniques to achieve the most lightweight car and the best performance. So what could people kind of expect in terms of performance from this? It's 500 horsepower at 1,000 kilograms, so it moves. Yeah, I can imagine it's a little bit, little bit nippy. Yeah. Uh, your, your favourite part of the car? Uh, the interior, because that's, that's the bit that I work on. <laughs> that, that's your baby? That's my baby. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's a lot of detail in there. So there's gold everywhere, gold round the, uh, round the, the central rev counter as well, which is, uh, yeah. which is quite impressive. So the instruments were assembled by Swiss watchmakers. They have gold chaplets and 3D numbers as well that have been put in by hand. So and there's a lot of attention to detail in, in this car. Uh, and the, the seats as well, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it's a very classic look, so a very classic sports car look, um, almost a bit of a Le Mans racer vibe to my mind. You guys have done a fantastic job of detailing there, the wheels which sit perfectly in line with the arches, the carbon fibre detailing around the rear bumper as well. I mean, it, it is sort of the, the original reimagined and updated, mm -hmm. and uh, I think you, you've done an absolute sterling job of that, to be honest with you. It's, a, it's a, a, an absolutely beautiful car. Well done. So uh, Jim and I are just wandering around the Cartier style and luxury uh, down in front of Goodwood House. Um, we've been looking over a number of different cars here. One that really stands out though is the McLaren F1, which is this year uh, as old as Goodwood is itself. Um, it's, it's a lovely looking car, obviously famed for its unusual three-seat arrangement, but it's, it's just a special car all round, really, a pioneer, I would say. Absolutely, and uh, of course held the record for being the fastest production car at 240 point one miles an hour and it actually held that record uh, up until 2005 so a, a staggering amount of time to hold such a world record for. I think it was uh, yeah, it was a certainly modified version that, that, that reached that but deeply impressive figures for the day and, and deeply impressive now. Uh, I think it was only a Koenigsegg actually that, that, uh, that knocked it off the top wasn't it? Uh, yeah spot on, a, a Koenigsegg CCR. Uh, but looking around the, the car itself, of course, as you say, the, uh, the three-seat layout actually making it one of the more practical supercars, as uh, if you have a wife and a kid, then you don't need to choose between them as to which one you're going to take out at a weekend. Yeah, and there definitely might be a choice there, I think, <laughs> between the two otherwise. I mean, perhaps not the most practical, getting in and out clearly is, is an issue. It's not just a case of just sitting your way down through the door. But I think what really sets this car apart is the fact that it's a car that, that we've held so dear to ourselves as Britons. Um, and certainly uh, until the revival of McLaren, it, it really was a, a, a very, very high point in terms of our, our sports car production history. There's nothing really to, to rival it. And it's only really recently, in, in real terms, that we've sort of seen a, a return to form and long may it last. The technology and the equipment that we see on, on modern cars 
uh, admittedly not the active area and everything else, but the, the materials that are being used, the carbon fibre, uh, gold where it's necessary as well, the weight saving, it, it's all quite apparent in this car, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it really was designed to be the very best that it could be. It's uh, British through and through and built with no compromises. In fact, the central driving position being decided is the optimal position for the driver. The two seats and the practicality element of it actually coming as a, as a byproduct of that central driving position. Yeah, I mean, and, and a Gordon Murray, I'll say driven car, if you pardon the pun. But, uh, but yeah, certainly conceived and, and one of those cars that, that will go down as, as one of the all-time greats, I'd say. It's not all supercars down here at Cartier. There's a bit of everything. There's a two CV sat behind me, and, and if that's out your bag, good for you. Um, but in front of me here is something on a, a different kind of scale. It's a, a 1920 Model T, uh, and for want of a better word, it's a taxi, a hackney carriage. Um, what's particularly special about this one, though, is that it has an absolutely cracking interior. So the front part of it is a covered, uh, covered area for the driver. Out the back, open top convertible with a full tweed interior. It's, it's unbelievably plush. Now, this is uh, over £60,000 worth of car uh, uh, now, today's money. Um, but to be honest, if you know, people were pulling up and they said, do you want to catch a taxi or do you want to catch one of these? I think I'd pay the extra to go in one of these. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely splendid. Possibly more me than it, than it is you, Jim. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly the uh, the tweed interior lends itself to more your style. Obviously a bit of history with this car, as you can imagine, being first built in 1920, uh, used as a taxi by the Whitstable Taxi Company, retired out of service just before the Second World War, had a number of owners post-war, but then was put away, unrestored in the barn for many, many years, and uh, rediscovered just after the great storm of October 1987, the year I moved down to Sussex, actually, when the, uh, the barn and the car itself were hit by a falling tree. So the car had resurfaced and was, uh, as we said, put up to auction with Bonhams and returned to the road in just April of last year. And what a beautiful restoration job they've done on it, it has to be said. They haven't, they haven't gone too over the top as well. The paintwork still looks the right amount of thickness, little vents and bits and pieces still show all the right detail. Uh, it's got some of the pattern of, uh, of its age, but the interior is, is definitely the stand-up moment for me. Brilliant way to get around and... And if only they still had taxis like this now. So convertible taxis, what a concept. We should bring that back. I'm just trying to think actually what was out there that you could, you could really use for it, really. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think maybe something Land Rover, perhaps, or... Well, a couple of models out of the Rolls-Royce range spring to mind. That would be a cheap taxi. I mean, it's not quite your normal Mondeo or Sofia <laughs> or something else. Airport run, just pick, chuck in the back of the roller. Um, but yeah, uh, we need to make this happen. There you go. If you're listening up there now and you, and you drive a taxi, uh, or a private hire vehicle, or a hackney carriage, wherever you want to phrase it, then maybe this is your, your little niche that you could find yourself into. Tweed, convertible, Model T, or something a bit more modern, let's be honest. Um, way of, of rolling around. Very nice indeed. 507 Roads to win the factory heart off. An outstanding example, with impeccable provenance and credentials, and of course, extremely rare. A long and distinguished history Fact when John Surtees was given the car new by Count Domenico Augusta as his special gift for winning the Motorcycle World Championship of Stride and MV Augusta. It is unique, it is rare, it is elegant, and it is very much the John Surtees 507. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, and I can already open the bidding at £1 million. 1.8 saves time. <laughs> Two million. Back at two. Three million Three million four hundred thousand. New world record here at Bottoms at Goodwood. Three million four hundred thousand. Tom, 
your car. Jim and I are stood down by the Mercedes-Benz Classic and as always as you probably expect from Mercedes-Benz and, uh, and the Silver Arrows we have got a selection of silver racing cars here. Now these are our pre-war ones we're standing in front of us so uh, hopefully you will have seen from one of the pictures on our, on our site uh, this is a Mercedes-Benz W125. Um, it's quite a special one this one. Uh, I mean it only weighs 750 kilograms and the size of it is huge. It's about the size of a, a Mondeo, albeit a bit narrower. Um, but it's the rest of the stats that are particularly are particularly interesting. It produces an unbelievable 592 brake horsepower in a car that, as Gates has just said, weighs only 750 kilos. And the top speed of the car, bearing in mind there are no seatbelts, what can barely be described as a windscreen, no safety features whatsoever, is 320 kilometres or 200 miles an hour. Unbelievable. And it's absolutely mad. I mean, I'm, I put my hand across the tyre now and it's, I can, my hand span easily covers the width of the tyre. It's got a, a sort of positive camber with the wheels tucked in slightly at the bottom. As Jim has just said, no, no seat belts, there's nothing really to protect you down the side. Uh, it's all open. It's just obviously a super lightweight car. Uh, it, it must be a an absolute handful to drive but can you imagine the size of the stones you would need to drive one of these at pace? I think we both decided we'd like to drive it but probably not at 200 miles an hour and we certainly wouldn't fancy racing it. They were brave lads indeed. So a bit of a shift and we've advanced a, a fair few years so from going back to the 30s right the way through to, to 2014. Uh, now we're still sticking with Mercedes, uh, we're looking at the, uh, the Petronas F1 car here at the front is a hugely complicated wing arrangement, um, which I just always assumed was just set up a, a certain way to be able to try and get the, the air around the car correctly, but as it turns out, Jim knows the answer. Well, the uh, front wing and the front aerodynamics of Formula One cars have been the subject of massive change and quite a bit of controversy over the last couple of years with the, the anteater noses, the, the low noses that were mandated, leading to some, uh, some rather odd-looking solutions from some of the teams. But the 2014 F1 W05 is uh, a particularly elegant solution to the nose front wing arrangement issue. We can see the, the very end plates of the front wing aimed at pushing the air, pushing the outwash, way out to the side and, and beyond the, fr the front tyres. The, uh, the centre outer section of the wing almost pushing the air over the top of the tyres and then all of the rest of the flicks and the winglets on the inside of the wing pushing the air underneath the car where it can do the most work and give the most downforce. But as always for, uh, for an aerodynamicist the issue is dealing with the front tyres and the turbulence and the wake that they create while still getting the most out of the air to give you some downforce. We're sat in the Martini Drivers Garden with George Russell, who's just been up the hill, come back down again and is hopefully enjoying a, a few moments of well-deserved rest. Is this your, your first time at Goodwood? Yeah, first ever time, surprisingly. An unbelievable event and experience here. So many fans, so glad to put on a show for the people. And it must be quite something just coming out here and then everyone recognising you and everyone wanting a selfie and, and wanting to see each other. And how is that? No, it's great, especially being British, obviously. Uh, a few more people know me than at the usual race circuit. So, uh, no, fantastic experience. And, um, no, like I say, it's great that there are so many fans here and it's good to, good to give something back to these people. And is the hill as tough as it looks? It looks really tight as you get up the top if you're pacing it up there. Yeah, definitely. I did go quite uh, fast to start with and it kind of caught me by surprise at how tight and bumpy the, the circuit was. So, uh, no, it's definitely quite tight through there, but 
I mean, we've, we've done Monaco this year. I've raced at Macau, so I'm used to kind of street circuits and tight walls. Just uh, not maybe necessarily the flints as you yeah, go through in the hay sure, bales on the sure. other side. A quick rattle through your career so far. It's fairly easy. I mentioned the word champion a hell of a lot. MSA Karting, British Open champion, Super 1 British champion, Formula Kart Stars British champion, uh, FIA European CIK champion. You've won races in Formula Renault. You're the Formula 4 champion, the GP3 champion, and currently leading the standings in Formula 2. And just to keep you busy as well, you're the test and reserve driver for Mercedes AMG Petronas. So life's pretty good right now, isn't it? Yeah, life is definitely pretty good. I think uh, obviously a lot of hard work to get me to to the position I am today. Um, starting all the way back off in, in karting and working my way up through through the ranks and then almost starting from afresh again, moving into single seaters and once again trying to work my way up through, through the ranks and um, thankfully I got the opportunity with Mercedes. You touched on there about the hard work. We were chatting to a touring car driver earlier who was telling us about some of his worst days, some of his most testing days whilst driving cars. On the outside, he's won championships and he's had podiums and poles and fastest laps and wins, etc. Uh, so from the from the outside, again, your your career would seem champion, win, win, champion, win. Yeah, it's easy. Yes, yeah, so like you say, obviously, just watching from, from the outside, it's very easy just to, to see drivers going out there, being successful, winning races, putting it on pole, but... Obviously, there's a lot of hard work going in. One, training to be a racing driver, it's not quite as physically as easy as people first believe. Also, spending time with the team, understanding what makes the car go quick, putting in the hard work from that side of, of things just to, to try and uh, hit the ground running when you arrive to a racetrack. And then once again, when you when you are, you got to, I think, the more time working hard with the team to understand uh, the setup changes you need to do to maximize that at a race weekend. Um, and that's just kind of purely racing terms. Then there's a huge amount of sacrifice you do as a as a person. I think the typical uh, twenty year old would be you know out drinking, partying most weekends, and I don't do any of that. And I don't it's not, I don't miss it, or I, I've never even really done it. But it doesn't. Uh, it's not really something I feel like I want. I want to be a Formula One driver, and I can't be uh, messing about with doing that. So it's kind of all or nothing, and that's the sort of attitude I'm taking. So uh, that leads us on nicely, as I've uh, touched on leading the, the Formula 2 standings uh, and dovetailing that with Formula 1 duties, is Formula 1 the aim for next year or the year after? Or I think it's the aim for next year. I think um, realistically there's no reason why we couldn't have a race seat next year. I think um, obviously leading the Formula 2 championship at the moment, everyone's seen what Charles Leclerc has been doing in Formula 1 this year and just goes to show what sort of level Formula 2 is really in. If you can win in that, um, I think you are deservingly, especially in your rookie year, I think you're definitely deserving of a, of a Formula 1 seat. And of course you've raced against Charles on many occasions and finished in front of him on many occasions, so does that does that give you a confidence boost, a, a self-belief boost? or? I obviously believe in myself a lot. I think I've, since racing Charles, we've had, we've had many good battles, but I think we've both come a long way since then. Um, that was back in the Carson days, Formula Renault days, Formula 3 days. Uh, we've raced each other a number of times. Um, but like I say, I know he's a very good driver. I believe in myself, but we'll, I think we've, we've both progressed leaps and bounds since.
And uh, as uh, Mike had touched on earlier, you're heading up the hill this weekend in the W07. The Formula One difference between speed and and downforce grip, etc., but a major difference between Formula One and lots of lower formulas is the hybrid technology. From the Formula One running you've had so far, how is it coping with the, the hybrid systems and things like that whilst being really quite busy worrying about braking and apex points to be honest just worrying about the hybrid systems are not it's not that much of a task i think uh, the cars are extremely complex at the moment and you've got so many different settings on the steering wheel and i think that's where you need to put your focus in to to be able to make these switch changes naturally because you can optimize corner by corner slightly more by maximizing these switch settings and in a normal junior category, all you've got to worry about is obviously driving quick, braking points, cornering, throttle. Obviously, it's not quite as simple as that, but the fundamentals are are that. Whereas in Formula One, you've got so many additional things to worry about. Um, just to just to try and eke that last little bit out of the car, which in junior levels you don't have that possibility to do that. And top of the F2 standings as we've said, snapping at your heels is is Lando Norris, Lewis Hamilton doing well, England I think had had a decent World Cup run. A fairly good time to be British, does that give you an extra a sense of pride, it's, it's you and another Brit leading the way? Yeah I think it definitely gives me a bit of pride to be British but I think um, yeah, many people have touched on the fact obviously myself and Lando being British, both junior drivers but end of it I kind of just treat him as another driver really he's another another driver who I'm out there to try and beat it makes no difference to me that he's a Brit that he's a, another F1 junior or, or reserve driver he's just another driver who I have to go out and beat so um, but no being British there's a lot of pride being British motorsport is pretty much a British industry with so many teams based in the UK founded in the UK and um yeah, the prestige of most sport in the UK is massive, so to be British is, is great. So the battle with the, the Brits, you don't really care too much about the uh, the nationality of your opponent. Uh, obviously, against Europe, you're up against some phenomenal talent, Albon, Markalov. Uh, anyone in particular stand out to you as, as being somebody that you really enjoy racing or your, your toughest opponent? Or has that been in previous categories? Cool. Um... I think so far this season in Formula 2 I've not really had any wheel-to-wheel battles with anyone there's not I don't think for any of the drivers at the sharp end of the field nobody's really had like a, a one-on-one battle or fight there's no kind of standout driver for one another I think probably Norris and Albon probably stand out for being the two most consistent drivers who are always there kind of with me obviously Albon's had a lot of poles and front row starts Norris is always there or thereabouts so I think yeah, those two stand out. You know, each race weekend they're going to be there. There, so um, yeah, probably those two. But being a, a tight and competitive series, you can have the odd driver springing a surprise. You know, Jack Aikens had some very good results and then some fair to middling results. So the the threat can come from anywhere, really, can't it? I think in this series you've got a good fifteen drivers who all on their day are capable of winning races. I think. Um, the broadness of talent in Formula 2 this year is probably larger than it's ever been in my opinion. I think there's always been great drivers in Formula 2 but I don't believe as many as there are this year and like I said I believe there's a lot of drivers who can all win on their day which makes it difficult because uh, to be consistently there you've, like you said you have the odd driver on their day can be very quick and just throw uh, something random into the mix so as someone who's going for the championship you've always got to be on it and you can't slip up ever because if you do it might not only be your title rival goes ahead but you might have someone else unexpected uh, jump you as well.
Well, barring uh, safety car issues earlier on in the season and, uh, and an engine issue at Monaco, you seem in a, a rich run of form at the moment. It's just been a nice, uh, a nice streak of wins. So, is the aim obviously to keep that up? Definitely. I think we've potentially could have had another win or two under our belt this year. It's not been, even though we're leading by 37 points and I think 60 to third, which sounds a huge margin. I think we potentially could have been even f- further ahead. I think um, obviously we had a safety car restart issue in Baku, which potentially cost me a, a solid 27 points uh, for the win and fastest lap and obviously Monaco who knows what could have happened because we just got no track time so uh, like I say it's been a scrappy year so far I'm just hoping and I believe that if we just have a, a smooth run, run of form moving on we've definitely got the pace to, to win this thing. Just a, a couple of really quick questions real quick quiet questions for you if you had to take one car home with you here today which would it be? One car home? Oh um I saw the McLaren F1 GTR, I think it is, what won Le Mans in 97. I think that'd be a pretty cool one to drive. Absolute beauty. And is there any one person that stands out to you as an absolute hero? No. Honest answer. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. It really has. We could chat to you for hours and hours and hours, and you're going to do absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much indeed. Really, really appreciated. Thank you. Electric is, is getting more and more interest, and, and it's easy to see why. In, in front of me now is a Gen 2 Formula E racer. It produces 250 kilowatts. If I'm honest, I don't really know what that means, but what I do know is it's punching enough power for a 2.8 second 0 to 60, and weighing in under a tonne, the cars are definitely becoming exceptionally quick. Earlier this afternoon, we saw VW's uh, ID Pikes Peaks racer fly up the hill, fresh from its Pikes Peak victory, uh, claiming not only the fastest electric scale, but fastest car overall. Now, I know Jim knows a bit more about the, the electric racers. Um, so what I'd like to know, really, is what do you think about the future of this race series? Uh, and it's already growing in popularity, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, certainly, as you say, gained popularity over the last couple of years. It has a slightly different format uh, as a race weekend compared to your, your traditional combustion or petrol or diesel-powered race series. There's a lot more fan involvement. Uh, fans can get involved by uh, voting for their favourite driver. That driver actually then receives a speed boost in the race, so the fans can actually influence the results, so really get involved with it. Uh, as you say, we're looking at the Gen 2 car, a little bit radically different from the, the Gen 1 car that's been in use for a good couple of years now. Obviously, one thing that has moved on a hell of a lot over the last couple of years is battery technology. The current Formula E race series sees the drivers actually swap cars halfway through the race as the battery power simply wouldn't last the entire race. This Gen 2 car will actually do the whole race on one battery, showing just how much the uh, the technology has improved over the years. Not just battery technology, but regenerative braking, the harvesting, and the efficient recycling of the energy, which of course all filters down to road cars. We're seeing more and more plug-in hybrid electric, hybrid electric and pure electric vehicles, and a lot of the technology that's on those vehicles is motorsport derived. Motorsport always improves the breed. Uh, I think that's definitely the case because electric cars, let's be honest, the problems have always been range anxiety. We know now that they're fast, it's just how far they'll go. And uh, I mean, if we look at the developments that have come from Formula One, from touring cars, and that have made their, ways in, it, it, you know, made their way into <clears throat> normal production vehicles, we have no doubts that this is going to carry across. And if nothing else, it's definitely going to boost consumer confidence. If you're interested in a bit more of Formula E, why not take a look back at what we looked at last year at Goodwood. Uh, some fantastic interviews that give you a bit more information and uh, certainly we're going to see more and more of this in the future. 
We're back in the paddock again now, surrounded by Ferrari, Shelby, a GT40 is uh, just rolling in. And what's really tickled our eyes are a Mondeo and a Volvo. Um, but they're not just standing either, Jim. No, it's a Volvo Estate, no less. The Volvo 850 Estate from the British Touring Car Championship. And it was actually this car that originally ignited my passion for motorsport and for cars in general. Uh, my dad had a, a 760 Estate as a road car and uh, he took us to Bransatch one day and to see Ricard Rydell come thundering over Paddock Hill Bend in this thing flat out, it, it blew my mind and uh, it started a passion that's burned brightly ever since. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say that sort of the era of the Super Touring were sort of the glory days when you consider sort of the big names that were in play at the time. I mean, I'm stood right next to the Alfa Romeo at the moment. I've got um, Reed Mondeo beside of me there as well. Um, on the other side of the, of the Volvo is, is Andy Rouse's uh, RS500. Again, a, a massively dominant car uh, in its calibre livery. Uh, we're going to try and find out a bit more about what it's like to, uh, to own and run one of these cars. Right, so I'm still behind uh, Rydell's 850 Volvo. I'm speaking to a gentleman here, and your name is, sir? Jason Minshaw. So I've got to ask, what was it that really got you into the touring cars and racing in general? Yeah, it's a bit like a racehorse, really. Thoroughbred. The old man's done it for donkey's years. Been dragged up with the uh, smell of petrol fumes and Castrolar. Just straight into it, really. Never started with, like the kids, on go-karts. I was always mechanicing on the car. Uh, from, God, what, 12 up to 16 when... We ran um, Roland Ratzenberger in a Group AM3 in the family car. And um, then when I was, I think it was 23, I started racing a Formula Ford. And that was it. I set, set off racing then. So I do the mechanicing, the logistics and the driving now. So it's all good fun. Bit of everything. And, it's, and certainly the, so the best way to know your car, I guess, know your setup and, uh, and know exactly what, what you've done when you go out there. If in the unfortunate case something goes wrong. <laughs> well, if you hear a, a clank, a bang or a wallop, you've got half an idea what's fell off or going to fall off or has fallen off. So, um, yeah, no, it's, 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 you certainly become a bit more mechanically sympathetic when you've got to fix it yourself. And, and, and your background, uh, you mentioned me uh, off mic a moment ago, a, a very famous name that, uh, that all of us sort of petrol heads will, will sort of know and love and undoubtedly bought bits and pieces from, which, uh, which helps give you a, bit of an, a better idea in, t in terms of your sort of background. Yeah, uh, Demon Tweaks. We've uh, been going for, God, must be coming up for nearly 50 years now. Um, yeah, it's quite handy when you're sort of prepping a car and you suddenly think, I need one of those. Next morning at work, first job, go and get the bit off the shelf. But still a world of temptation, undoubtedly. I think I'll probably have to take more stuff home. Yeah, yeah you, you have to have a bit of a limit, otherwise you just you, you go bonkers. But still, what a showcase. Okay, just tell me a, a little bit more about uh, how you came across the car, you've got what you drive. and The rules changed at the end of 94 from what was the two-litre championship to what they called now Super Touring, with the, the front were splitters and the wings after Alfa Romeo took the mick with the adjustable wings and front splitters and what have you. And the rule basically said you can have a, a rear wing, but it can't be above the roof line or behind the rear bumper, which put the estate car straight out the window for the following year. So Volvo, in their infinite wisdom, decided to chop the roof off and the rear quarters off their uh, estate car and panel it up as a saloon to get the, uh, the wing bolted on and get it in an aero uh, wind tunnel as soon as they possibly could. A, a bit of a chop and change, um, but still... Admittedly, a very cool car. A car that I think has actually got better with age as they sort of gained a bit of retro appeal. But what do they like to drive and own? Mad. It's just, you can't get your head around it. You, they're front wheel drive, but they feel absolutely nothing like a front wheel drive car. 
they just grip. Uh, the estate car that I own is a little less grippy because um, that was their first foray into saloon racing since the Rovers in 1986 with TWR and they'd never done front wheel drive before so they took them till 98 to get a car that was capable of winning the championship which is the one that I own as well and uh, yeah that's just mad bonkers car it's just everything's adjustable you can't really get your head around how much is adjustable and you tie yourself in knots quite easily but grip and the they're not massive on power they've got sort of just over 300 horsepower but the the rev range is like sort of six seven hundred revs between each gear and you just pull the gears so fast and it just accelerates like bilio really it's just mad oh well this this was a, a time of sort of unlimited budget but also cars that are very sensitive to the setup so yeah i think we're going to be drowned out by everything around thank you so much for talking to us no problem uh, I'm Tom Mann from Alan Mann Racing. So I'm stood by a very, very famous car. It's in red and gold. Um, you don't need to say the name to know who it's going to be, but it's Alan Mann Racing. So can you tell me a little bit more about Alan Mann the man and Alan Mann Racing, the brand, the company, and, well, there's a huge amount of history there, so give us a bit more. Alan Mann was a, a young man when he started Alan Mann Racing. Uh, it all started out of a, out of a Ford dealership in, in 1963. Uh, he went got an opportunity to go and uh, race Cortinas in uh, in the States and without you know, wanting to uh, embarrass anybody, severely embarrass the Ford Works team in their backyard of Dearborn, which caused quite a few ructions amongst senior Ford management. They offered him a job. He said no. Uh, and so he said, but I'll start my own company and uh, you can be my client. And incredibly, they said yes. And that started a very successful career, uh, starting with uh, Cortinas and the Escort, the GT40, uh, the, the Daytona Cobra uh, was part of a programme with Shelby um, and a few other cars in between, uh, some cars for films, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang being the most famous and yeah, had all the had all the, the great drivers. This is an era where Formula One drivers also drove saloon cars. So, you know, Jackie Stewart drove for Alaman Racing. Graham Hill did a lot of driving for Alaman Racing. Um, the late, great John Whitmore did a lot of driving for Alaman Racing. So um, there's, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a very it was a short-lived brand. I mean, they they closed their doors in late six, 1969, and we we revived it in 2014. Uh, my myself and my, my brother Henry, who, who runs the team on a day-to-day -day basis and does most of the driving, and uh, but yeah, for 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 six years we uh, we put a lot of uh, we put a lot of stuff into uh, into the history books, I think. So and it's certainly the the colour scheme is one of the more iconic colour schemes I think in, in that you know in motorsport along with you know, the, the Golf Porsches and the uh, the McLaren Marlboro sponsorship from the from the early nineties. Um, yeah it's it's a great privilege to be kind of continuing dad's work from the sixties. Um, and everybody we're we're constantly touched by how many people come and come up to us and say, Oh I saw I saw your I saw your dad racing or I saw you know I saw your cars racing when I was a little boy and all this kind of stuff and it's it's fantastic. Um, and you know, young, the younger generation uh, are, are, are coming to uh, are coming to it as well, which is great. We've got some young lads working for us. We've got some uh, John, our head mechanic, his father worked for Alaman Racing, so it's a kind of it's a continuation of uh, of that really. So yeah, we're we're very pleased. So that's a family business then, in, in every sort of sense there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's very very much a family business. Um, so you know, it, it's it's owned by my myself and my brother Henry. Uh, our mum is on the board as well, uh, and hopefully uh, our children will get involved as well.
it, certainly an iconic card, an iconic name, and, and certainly one to be proud of. I know the, the red and gold colour scheme, which was, was always sort of rumoured to have real gold in the paint, and I know it's a closely guarded secret as to what colour gold it actually <laughs> is, but it w was out there really, if nothing else, to sort of differentiate yourselves from the works teams. It made it very obvious that they were Alan Mann cars. Well, it, yeah, it started in 64, really, with uh, with the Cortinas, and, and, and there was this sort of whole fleet of, of these white and green Cortinas, and, and Dad couldn't see his cars, so he came up with this colour scheme. So the... the Originally, the uh, the red is uh, Mon the Ford. I think it's called Monaco red, and then the gold is uh, is our own concoction, special blend. <laughs> so our own special blend, ironically made from made for us uh, by a guy uh, not so far from where you live in Shoreham. So, um, and then, but it's now it's uh, we Ford don't do Monaco red, so it's Ferrari red and our own special gold. And you can always tell the AMR cars because no one else gets the gold right. Yes. Yeah, so sure. this, this this has this sort of uh, this sort of luster and this sort of sheen to it, yeah. which. Uh, which is just kind of hallmark of of, of, uh, of our cars, but yeah, it's it's a very very uh, distinctive colour scheme, that's for sure. Now, on first glance, I mean, we'd be looking at some of the other BTCC cars, some of the some of the brand new ones, some from the '90s as well. And on first glance, it looks like a lot of the original escorts there. I mean, aside from the bubble arches, we've got headlining, we've got uh, uh, you know door cards in, and we've got a dashboard as well. Yep. But it's not all uh, quite as it seems, is it? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's first of all, it's obviously much lighter than than your uh, you know than your original Escort. Uh, it has uh, it weighs about 800 kilos, um, and it, so you know it, it'll put out with the original uh, FVA uh, Cosworth engine. It'll put out about 260 horsepower, which is not bad for a uh, for a car that weighs only 800 kilos. Uh, this is this is a uh, twin cam engine. In uh, the FVA was not allowed in uh, 1969 because uh, it, I think they. Uh, they were worried it, 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 ran, it won too easily in uh, in '68, uh, but also I mean the really the, the the bones of this Escort are all it's all about the back. It's all about the, the rear suspension, uh, which is a kind of it was a special design uh, by a man called Len Bailey who worked on uh, the GT40s and and this yeah, big uh, for us. Yeah, and uh, so it's that's really the kind of what made that made the car to be honest. But this was one of the this was one of the first six off the line, so they were made in. Uh, in Halewood, up in up in Liverpool, and uh, they they came off they came off the line in uh, I'm going to say April May. So we started the '68 season with a Mark II Cortina, and then as soon as these were ready, out they came. So and there's I think three remain. So I think this I think there's only th only three left out of the original six. Um, I, th there's definitely two, uh, of which we've we've ha had two through our doors, and I think there's one more, and then that's it. The rest are have lost unfortunately uh, there's, there's absolutely no questioning that um uh, that, that it, it was those sort of early successes that really contributed to ford's popularity in that era i mean if you think about the tin top series that were out there seeing these thundering around iconic colors as well undoubtedly there were a bit of a few reps back then as well flying around oh, oh, but uh, absolutely but i mean also i mean i mean yeah some of the some of the cars were, were used as you know just regular cars as well I mean when we ran the Mustangs dad used one of the Mustangs for a long time it's his, his day to day car um, so I, I, but the, the interesting thing is that you see I was in France recently and one of the first kind of big successes of AMR was winning the 1964 Tour de France automobile with the Mustang which had never been seen in Europe before um, and, it, and it won that uh, in fact they did the one two for that and I still speak to people in France uh, I was in the Champagne region the other day, and uh, I bumped into a fella, and he said, "Oh, I saw, I saw uh, these Mustangs, and that's why I own a Mustang." And I'm like, yeah, they're, "They're my father's Mustangs," and we had a, ended up into a long conversation. But yeah, so that's the 
it, it has it has sort of started this this whole thing, and then you had the they ended up with the Mustang and Goldfinger and so on and so forth, and which again was done by us. Uh, and it's uh, yeah, it just I think it people people saw those cars in a, in a way that may, perhaps you don't get to do these days. Um, so 2018 Mustang. Do you think we should see a, an AMR edition? Uh, we're, 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 we've had some discussions about it. We'd, 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 we'd like to do we'd like to do something. It is fundamentally a different kind of engineering, um, but uh, because obviously this is uh, this is nuts and bolts and no computers, and the 2018 Mustang is a little bit different. But we we would like to do something. We've we've had we've had some discussions about it. We're they're ongoing. Excellent. I, I love it. A guarded answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. So we're just out the front of Goodwood House in front of the rather impressive Porsche sculpture. One of the highlights of this weekend is 60 years of BTCC and we're joined by one of the current stars, one of the rising stars of the BTCC, Chris Miley driving for the BTC Norlin Honda team. All right, how you doing? Quite unusual to get this sort of weather in the Great Britain. You know, it's absolutely fantastic to be here and we're actually trying to hide from the sun instead of getting the suntan, so it's great. Yeah, certainly a rare thing here, although Goodwood, the, uh, the weather seems to be one thing or the other. You either come away with trench foot or sunburn. It's uh, never anything in between, but uh, sun's certainly shining down today. So we've had an interesting season for you so far, some ups, some downs. Yeah, it's been a bit of a frantic season, to be honest, so far. Um, obviously changing from the Chevrolet chassis to the Honda was uh, qu- quite a last-minute thing, to be honest. Um, we, did, we didn't actually get the cars finished until literally two days before the media day. So uh, it was a little bit frantic. We basically shook them down and took them to the media day. It was the first time I'd even driven the car. Uh, we had it loaded up full of ballast, 75 kilos on board, and we, we put a P10, which, you know, you say to yourself it's a media day, but everybody else there is pushing on, and I, th- I think it was pretty impressive to go out. The car's never turning a wheel because my car was literally a brand-new car. It had never been raced before. Yes, it was the older shape shell, but it's literally a brand-new car. So t- to go there and have the two cars circulating around and me ended up P10 at the end of the day was a big achievement for the team, you know, considering never ran before. And uh, we obviously rocked on to uh, Brands Hatch, where um, it was the first time I'd ever done a qualifying run on the car. And a stunning qualifying performance, wasn't it? Oh, well, I think 17th doesn't sound fantastic, but whenever you, whenever you look at how close the grid is, where two tenths would put you, you know, two tenths probably would have put me third or fourth. So I think if you look at it that way, you know, it's uh, it's impressive to go there and, and, and go P17, come from P17 in the first race, I think to ninth. Um, I was lying fifth in the second race until the track completely dried up with six or seven laps to go and the cars who trundled around at the back and took the gamble on the, uh, the slick tyre managed to win the race and uh, that, that put us back to 17th or 16th I think it was uh, race 3 I raced back into the top 10 again but unfortunately the last lap two cars in front of me got involved in their own incident one of them came back across the into Druids and, and broke my suspension and uh, I went from 9th to 17th you know, it wasn't, wasn't where we should have been really, but when it, looking back at it now, we had the pace to be in the sort of top 10, which was great. And shortly after that, just proving the cars and yours potential, you've managed to get a podium as well? Yeah, well, we went to Donington Park. Uh, it was wet on the Saturday, and we went uh, P2 with, I think we were three thousands off the pole position, you know, which is nothing. Uh, the, the, the first race, that obviously put us P2 for the first race on Sunday morning, uh, which... Looking back now, should I have put the hard tyre on? No, but we, we didn't realise that we were going to qualify second on the grid. And uh, the first race was basically just survival. It, it just kept driving around and uh, I finished seventh, which was good. Um, that put us on the sort of 
on the on the upper foot for the next race because we then lost the we lost the hard tire and we had the medium one on. We came from uh, seventh to lead the race and. Uh, Tom Ingram with a ballast-free car took it off me with about three laps to go. But listen, you know, I had 30-odd kilos on. Tom had zero on. Um, it was it was good, you know. We led the race. Uh, we finished second. You know, it was a close finish. But, yeah, it, it, was, it was good. You know, it's been a long journey for me to get to this and to, and to sort of come away with a podium that weekend. You know, it was good. So with the current format of the Touring Car Weekend, with the qualifying and then the races deciding the grid position for the next and the reverse grid element how, how does that affect your approach over the weekend are you are you almost building up to the the last race being it or do you just take each race as it comes and and do what you can it's, it's purely down to where you qualify if you qualify in the top five or the top six it just makes your day really it doesn't make your day really easy but it makes your day much easier you know if, if you can survive race one race two is the one where you do the damage all the cars in front of you're heavily loaded up with weight you know you can go forward you know, it's basically, it's not about winning. Touring car racing is not about winning every race. It's about being consistent in the points all day. You look at Colin Turkington, I think he's won one race this year, but he's leading the championship. Yeah. And that's that just proves, you know, you have, you have to be consistent. And uh, John McGuinness just walking past us. <laughs> you know, you, you have to be consistent. You need to be always finishing and, and, and constantly in the points, you know. And I think I think if you look at what we've done this year with no testing or no nothing, you know, I think it's been pretty incredible. You know, it's it's pretty impressive. So how are you finding the feeling in the car? Is it Are you getting it dialed in more to your liking? Is, does the setup change every weekend or, or are you about where you want the car to be? Uh, I think I think the setup of the car at Croft, which was the last round, I think that we ma- took a massive step forward. My teammate Dan Lloyd, who was drafted in with just the race before that, you know, he's a lot of, a lot of experience in touring cars and he knows he knows the feeling of the car. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty experienced in racing cars, but to get that last little edge out of it with setup, you know, it's just a little tweak here and a little tweak there and whenever, and whenever you feel it's right you know it's right then because you get the feeling in the car oh that, that felt better you know then all, once you have that in your head then, then you know for yourself so you go, you go to another track and you just don't have that feeling oh we need to go a little bit more of that then you know so that's 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 what it is really you know it's a little bit of a little bit of tweaking here and there you know it's we, we probably need two tenths in ultimate pace and if we had two tenths in ultimate pace that would put us comfortably in the top five every weekend for qualifying you know and that's that, that's where you need to be. Once you're in the top five, you're in the lottery. You can build the weekend from there. The, the, the weekend's not easy, but it's a lot easier from there. You're not you're not sort of battling your way through all the battles in the midfield, which can be a little bit rough sometimes. <laughs> so uh, you've got a, a weekend occupation of touring car racing, a daytime weekday job of car sales. So on your weekend off, you thought you'd come to a, a car festival. How yeah. are you finding Goodwood? Yeah, it's good. There's so many people here, you know. It's... Uh, it's incredible how many people come to this. You know, you're walking around, you hear people speaking in Chinese, you hear people speaking in all sorts of different languages. You know, they're from all around the world. It's, it's unbelievable. But you, it just, you just have to have a look down through the the, 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 type of vehicles and things that are here. And there's no wonder there people come around the world. You'll see things here that you'll never see anywhere else in the world. It's, just, uh, it's a one, it's a once in a lifetime thing to see some of these things and some of the cars and things that you see around here are, are, are unbelievable. Any particular highlights for you? I'd imagine the uh, the touring car machinery. You've probably been there, done that. If I had to take any car home from here today, it would be Colin McRae's Subaru Impreza World Rally car. That is, the on, that is the only car here that I would want to take home with. Oh, I would like to take a lot of them home, but the Subaru Impreza W. If you gave me a choice out of any car here today, that would be the one I would have. Well, if you have it, I'll sit as a passenger alongside you and you can give me a ride in it. How's yeah, that? It's just no money to run it. That's the only problem. <laughs> <laughs> I need to steal a bank to, you know, to, to buy one of them. But no, it's, you know, you look, you look, for me, I was born in the 90s and that's, that's an iconic 90s car. My dad was a Subaru dealer for 25 years. You know, I know them inside out. Um, actually, 
actually last week I, I took one in on a part exchange it was a, a 2002 Impreza and had very low mileage of one owner from you and just to get into that car and drive it up the road it just brings you back almost 20 years it's such a such an amazing car they were well ahead of their time at that time you know it's just a shame now that they're not rallying and you, you, it's, it's, I don't think rallying is the same without them to be honest you know it's no, I'd, uh, I'd agree on that. It's a, it's a weird feeling, actually. I've been coming here for 20-odd for years, and the, the cars that I saw that everybody was talking about in terms of nostalgia and remembering them, I'm now talking about cars in the same way, but those cars are, yeah, from the, the early and the mid-90s. But it's, uh, it's wonderful to see such a, a breadth of machinery here. So, uh, so moving on for the rest of the season, then what, what, are your, what are your expectations, your hopes, your targets? I want to win a race. So I, do. I want to win a race and I want to win the Jack Sears Championship. You know, and I, I felt I felt from Croft that it was absolutely robbed of Croft. I should have left Croft leading that championship. You know, and I, I felt gutted leaving there because I knew in my own heart I had the pace. I, I beat we, we were beating the factory Hondas at, at Croft. You know, and I know in my own heart I, I had a little bit of problem with the car overheating. And I know in my own heart if I hadn't had that problem, I'd have been leading that championship today. But listen, we're only halfway through. There's still there's still plenty of beer tokens to collect yet. You know, and I think. I think I think the second half of the year I, I need to win a race and I need to uh, I need to win that championship. You know that's 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 what I'm pushing towards. And if we could finish somewhere in the top ten in the main championship, you know that would be. I don't think you could have asked much more for, for doing no testing, no nothing, been thrown thrown into the deep end with a new car. I think if we'd done that, that would be that would be as good as us winning the championship. I think if we'd done that, you know, I think it'd be pretty incredible for me and the team. Well, uh, the BTC Nolan team, a, uh, a fairly new team, but a wonderfully popular team. They seem to have a very strong, very loyal fan base already. Uh, what's it like being in with the BTC Nolan team day to day? Ah, listen, it's it's a, it's a bunch of guys. Listen, that want to go racing. You know, they're not there because they're they're made to be there. You know, the guys we have have been in the touring car paddock for a long, long time. You know, they've not they've not just turned up and you know drafted them in from another series they're they're hardened the guys that we have are hardened btcc engineers and mechanics and listen that that, that shows through that shows through in our results if we if we had a came there with a load of guys that haven't done it before you know our, our guys are a really experienced bunch of guys and you, you know you know whenever you get into the car it's right you just you just it gives you the confidence whenever you get into it you know you're you're, you're going out there and you have all the pressure of the tv cameras and all that stuff it's like going racing with my best friends. You know, everybody knows. Everybody there knows their job. I know what I have to do. You know, everything's relaxed. You're not under any pressure. It's just, it's a really, really good team. It's the best team I've ever been in. You know, ever in a, in a professional motorsport series. It's just for 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 lots of different reasons. You know, and it's just I have I've support from like like Zoe, our team manager. She knows she 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 knows me inside out. She knows. To keep keep on top of me, being here, be there. You know, she just everything's just run the tea, and it, it really is. It really is a great thing to be a part of. Fantastic. Well, we wish you all the best of luck for the rest of the season. We'll certainly be cheering you on, and I know the guys and girls at home will be as well. Best of luck, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks very much. So I'm by the Martini stand now, and there's a lot of very nice cars here, as you'd probably imagine. To my left is a Lancia Delta Integrale, but to my right and in front of me is a car that is a hero of mine. It's odd to say that the car's a hero, but uh, I'm sure you'll probably understand that uh, when I tell you this is Colin McRae's 2001 WRC Focus. Now this is a car that uh, when I was really into my cars growing up, I would see flying around the rally stages, if not always successfully, always flamboyantly. And it looks every bit the hero in real life as it does in the pictures, amazing in its martini livery. Now this is the first of the degeneration of Focuses, taking over from the, uh, the almighty and all-conquering Escort Cosworth. And in my mind, I'm conjuring images of Colin stood on the roof there, 
or kicking in the tailgate. It is a hero, uh, driven by a hero, and, and this car is actually for sale. Um, much more sadly than I'm ever going to be able to afford, I'm sure, but I would love to be able to get behind the wheel, even if it was only once. What more can I possibly say? The magnificent 2BB, offered for sale from no less than 47 years continuous ownership. The most prominent and charismatic of all Zagatos, one of the legendary Essex Racing Stable VEV cars, and one of just three Zagatos to the super lightweight MP209 specification. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. 2BB, first time in 47 years. Here it is, and I can open the bidding at £7 million. Pounds. Seven million pounds. Seven million, the opening bid at seven million pounds. Any advance on seven million? Eight million pounds, and eight million I have. Nine million pounds, with you sir, in the room. Staying in Europe, ladies and gentlemen, at nine million pounds, going for the first, second, third and final time, the magnificent MP209 specification Zagato. We are selling for nine million pounds. Congratulations, nine million pounds. So we are sat in the Martini Drivers Club again here this afternoon. Uh, and we're sat with Valtteri Bottas, who has just come down fresh from the hill. We saw you do some incredible smoky burnouts, by the way, just before you could come in there. Very impressive. At one point, we thought we were going to lose your car, actually. <laughs> you just couldn't see anything other than the cloud, and then you sort of appeared through it. So that's something out of, uh, something out of a movie. You're, you're the most recent in the long line of Flying Finns, and you're in good company. From Rally to F1, uh, we know that uh, Finland produces some, some fantastic drivers. But what is it that really attracted you to driving in cars? Was it seeing these, these heroes out on stage, or, or was it something else entirely? Yeah, for me, um, I tried a go-kart when I was five years old, first time. Immediately fell, fell in love with the, with the speed. I had my first race when I was six, so really started from there. And uh, yeah, it was nothing like... I ever tried before that got me that excited uh, was was sitting in a race car and immediately I knew that this is the sport I want to do and uh, for me being a Formula 1 fan uh, following you know the um, the drivers from our, our country like Hakkinen, Mika Salo, uh, JJ Lehto in Formula 1 uh, really motivated me to want, want to be there so I, I think having those kind of heroes as a, as a child that made a big difference. So far this season you've been quite unlucky in certain races the the general consensus in the paddock is really you could be leading the championship if things had gone your way is is the frustration there honestly i have no frustration uh, for sure after the after the difficult races uh, it's not a nice feeling and uh, takes a little bit of time to kind of again to get 100% motivated and uh, ready to ready to fight again but uh, no frustration in in general you know i've been uh, trying to perform better this year than last year and I, I feel I've managed to in general uh, kind of raise my, my bar in, in my own performances this year uh, but just things just haven't gone my way yet uh, I know it's uh, already halfway but there's the other half left and uh, it's still a long year ahead but yeah sometimes one of the things you can't affect uh, there's no point worrying about those too much 
and on factors sort of beyond your control, there's there's a lot being made of the Pirelli tyres this year, uh, variations in the construction, um, the number of compounds and the, the hardness or the softness or the hyper hardness, ultra softness of, of the tyres that they bring. Are, are you happy with the tyres as they are or would you prefer them to be slightly simplified and, and maybe a bit more robust so you can just drive flat out on them? Well, I, I think as a, as a racer, I, I think everyone thinks the same, that it would be so cool to go flat out all the time, you know, golfing laps from first lap to the last lap of the race. But we know it's not that great for overtaking and by different strate- strategies now it open, opens up many opportunities um, and things can happen. Like for me in, in Silverstone, last five laps I ran out of tires and that was it. So, you know, it can either uh, make you good uh, in terms of results or it can it can be your worst enemy the tie deck so it, it, it is a tricky one but at least in the golf fine we can really push flat out and um, the tires they are actually quite grippy but in the race yeah it's just how it is nowadays current engine rules with the, the hybrid technology and uh, and the regenerative harvesting and bits and pieces like that and how you need to manage all the systems on the car do you like that do you enjoy that or would you just rather have a, a thumping great v10 bolted in the back and 18,000 rpm and off you go well honestly I, with the nowadays engine um i love the power you know it's uh, they're very powerful now uh, a lot of torque uh, the driver drivability is is great and everything is so smooth and nice so that is cool um i am a bit of a petrol head my head myself so you know i love the the smell of petrol i love the noise of of v10 uh, or uh, 12. um again uh, things that i can't affect really is that uh, for sure the hybrid hybrids they are the future uh, one day maybe even electric but yeah for me for sure every every year now the sound is getting better and better it's getting closer to what it used to be but i, I don't think it's ever going to be the same with turbo engines but um yeah um, if you, if i could choose you know um v6 or or v10 v10 easily but um yeah uh, but you know they're, they're not bad at all to drive now so they're good fun so just overall as long as it's got a bucket load of power that's fine with you <laughs> indeed exactly perfect, yes. perfect. We see Nicky Lauder's Ferrari going up the hill. Um, he's famously direct and no nonsense. What does he like to work with? He's very direct. You know, he always <laughs> says uh, says like he thinks, which is very good. He's always very honest, very open. Um, but he, he's really a really good team player as well. You know, many many after some difficult times, many times he's been, you know, coming coming back to me and um, saying just the right words to kind of get me back up. So. He's, um, he's a great friend, um, legend in, in motor racing. So uh, I think we are very lucky to have him in, in our team. Do you, uh, do you think it does help that he's been there in championships? He's won and lost championships and raced himself. Do you think that does that add credibility to, to the advice that he gives you then? Definitely. You know, he's been through all that. You know, he's been racing all, all his life. He's been um, in so many different kind of situations through his career. So he's very experienced about everything and uh, always whenever he talks anything about driving or life I, li- I do listen carefully. With uh, the, the limitations in testing and the mileage and, and limits on engines and, and Friday practice and things like that, uh, how important is, is simulator work to you personally? Do you find that helps you prepare for a Grand Prix weekend? For me simulators um, they help in if there's a new track coming to the calendar. Um, 
to, to learn the layout because now they can be simulated like exactly all the bumps, everything like perfectly. So learning tracks is, is great. And normally before the season, um, we are doing some, some race simulations, so full race distances and, and having, you know, all kind of different issues during the race and practicing uh, the communication again with the, with the team, kind of just get back into it. But between the season, uh, between races, uh, for me, it's a minimal uh, advantage doing the simulator work because we are, you know, every week or at least every, every second week in, in, the, in the car and nothing just still beats the real car and the feeling. Um, but yeah, before the season, winter time is a useful tool. I guess with the cars so sensitive to the way they're set up as well, you can really you feel the difference in, in the actual car that you, you don't get. So I guess through the seat of your pants, in a, in a better way of putting it, you know, yeah. uh, that from a simulator. Indeed, you know, it's um, yeah, like I said, you know, just the real life, um, you know, G forces, vibrations, uh, feeling the car behavior. It's it is difficult to simulate, but for sure the simulators they are developing all the time and um, yeah, it, and massively with a quick rate. So I think soon, um, I don't know when, in how many years, it, it will be difficult to separate real life or simulation life. Do you think we'll get? I mean, we saw a couple of years ago Jan Mardenborough come from the Gran Turismo Academy and just just playing online in his bedroom to to racing at Le Mans, and obviously lots of F1 teams are getting into the esports side of things. Do you think someday soon there'll be a, a a guy lined up alongside you on the grid who came from playing F1 in his bedroom to to the grid that way rather than the traditional karting route? Honestly, for sure, I think it's more difficult, for sure, um, coming from simulators, um, directly jumping into high-level racing, um, because the yeah, uh, you know, it's um, the motorsport in a, in a very high level, like Formula One, it gets pretty physical, and nothing can train you than than driving from quite young age. I think you know it's very special, even though we, all the training we do, still every. Uh, winter tested and after the first two days we are completely you know <laughs> destroyed so I think the physical effects and also the kind of handling the speed and situations uh, when you're not anymore in the simulation life that's the only limitation there's no reset button in real life of course. exactly yeah, yeah. you uh, live in Monaco I understand and I'm always fascinated by what it is that F1 drivers drive day to day do you feel that you need to have a fast car or do you drive around and I don't know like a Fiat Punto or something. <laughs> Honestly, Monaco is not, not really the best place for cars. There are sure. better places, better place for motorbikes. You know, the traffic is can be pretty bad. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, at the moment I drive uh, Mercedes S Coupe 63. Very nice. Um, uh, it's blue, and um, yeah, what kind of creamy leather interior? Very nice car. Brilliant, yeah, and like you say, it's, I think it's probably almost easier to walk around Monaco at times, all the traffic. Um, if I said to you, favourite car and favourite track, what would you what would you take? Lancia Delta, Ooh. the rally car. And Sorry, what was the second part of the question? And and any track, I suppose, if it's track. a rally car, any course uh, as well. Nür- Nürburgring, Northlife. Oh, yes, yeah, tricky track. Yeah. Well, there is a, a Delta Integrale down there, so should we see if we can borrow it? I'm sure they'd let you borrow it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to put it going on. Uh, and if I said to you, uh, of all the cars here at Goodwood, you could take one home or take one up a hill, which would it be? Would it be the Integrale again? I think it would. But I think I got pretty lucky tri- driving the uh, 196, uh, W196 Mercedes. It was Fangio's old car. 
So uh, not an everyday car you get to drive, so it was a lucky day already. So no complaints there. Thank you so much for sitting and talking to us today. I'm sure it's been a long day for you. I hope you've had a great weekend down here in the sunshine. It's been, it's been a warm one. And, and thanks. Have a safe journey back. And thank you very much for talking to us. So it's the end of, of Sunday here at Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, possibly the hottest Goodwood that, uh, that I, can, I can remember. Uh, there's been a lot to, to see and, and to do here over the last few days. Undoubtedly we've had a lot of F1 content. Uh, the British Touring Car Championship, 60 years this year. We've had 70 years of Porsche, 70 years of Land Rover, 70 years of Lotus uh, and a bit of everything. I mean, What's been your highlight Jim? Well, modern F1 for me is is always a firm favourite, uh, especially when they let some of the uh, the young guns, the uh, the slightly more exuberant drivers, have a go in the cars up the hill. Young Jack Aitken, in particular, putting on a very good show. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And we got to meet uh, George Russell as well, of course, a young driver, only 20 himself. And uh, so sitting there, we could see that he was absolutely full of confidence. He, he knew uh, what he was capable of. He knew uh, what he'd come from and he knew the work that he put in to get where he wanted to be. Yeah, and uh, just catching up with some of the other drivers, we had a very good chat with Robert Kubica. Thoroughly, thoroughly nice bloke, just down to earth, really good fun to talk to but of course one hell of a quick driver as well. When you sit down with the guys on, on I guess I want to say on equal terms, when you're, you're sat down uh, just having a bit of a chat, uh, as we have done for you over the last few days, it's incredible when you think how, how nice these people are. They are just guys like you and I, and we um, really enjoy just sitting down and chatting with them. Yeah, and Valtteri said it, uh, said it himself. He's a, a petrol head. He loves the, the smell of petrol and the smell of burning tyres, as uh, I think we all do. We've seen some incredible donutting, some massive clouds of tyre smoke. We thought we were going to going to lose Valtteri for a moment in, <laughs> in just a massive cloud of, of, of his own smoke. Um, but it's been a bit of everything. You know, we've had drag bikes, we've had classic cars, we've had tin top tourers, we've had super tourers, we've had rally cars flying up and down the special stages, again in huge clouds this time of dust rather than anything else, and it really has been dusty here. I, I, you know, I apologise to you all now if I'm starting to, to sound a bit tired, if we're both starting to sound a bit tired, but... It, you know, it has been an absolute scorcher, 26, 27 degrees in the shade and hotter when you're out there in the sun. But uh, you just imagine what it'd be like sat there in a car, perspex windows, your Nomex on, your race suit on. I mean, it, it must be, how should I say this, just a bit warm. Uh, unpleasantly warm but it, it has been absolutely great everything that you'd expect from Goodwood you know we we hope we brought you a, a selection of the bits and pieces we've had also we've seen some some interesting cars Jim favorite thing you've seen going up and down the hill uh, up and down the hill it would probably have to be Ricard Rydell's 850 estate from uh, from the mid 90s touring car area uh, one of the cars that, that got me into motorsport in the first place uh, just an iconic car and, and what a sight to see go up the hill so there you are, out of all the Exotica, we've had uh, a Volvo Estate driving up through Goodwood that, uh, that has proved to be the most popular. And if you're going to take a car home? Uh, well, the Volvo Estate would be fairly top of the list, just for practicality purposes. You can fit plenty in the back of it. Uh, but I think it, it would probably be... Uh, I think it would be McRae's focus for me if I could take any car home. I think you'd have to fight me for the keys, because if I'm honest, that's going to be mine. Although, do you know what? I think... The Alan Mann Escort, that's, that's got to be up there. It really does. I mean, we spoke about this earlier on, funnily enough, the practicality of, uh, of having a rally car, because actually if you do keep it in your driveway, um, then, you know, or in your garage, should I say, I don't think you want to leave it on the drive, but if you keep it in your garage, you could actually drive it somewhere on the road, of course, whereas uh, you do need a, uh, a race shuttle and all the equipment to get something to a track. But 
Um, in terms of bits and pieces going up the road for me, up the hill, should I say, uh, I think probably the, the most impressive thing up the hill has been the, um, the latest VW ID electric racer. Odd for me to say, not saying it's my favourite, but certainly the most impressive. Uh, the pace that thing's put out is, is absolutely, absolutely crazy. Um, favourite noise of the show? Well, it's kind of been that, to be honest with you. You can probably hear in the background just the sound of V8s, V10s, straight sixes, flat fours, you name it. Um, just being started up and being thundered around. Uh, I've heard cars that I never realised could be as loud as that, minis that uh, you know would make the ground shake. Absolutely crazy. A v V8 uh, Aston Martin Signet, for example, there, and a number of supercars too. So I really hope that you've all enjoyed listening to, uh, to the podcast and that we've brought you some bits and pieces that are interesting and maybe some insights into places you wouldn't have seen otherwise at Goodwood. I mean, certainly it's, it's great to come here and look around and it's difficult to see the whole thing even in a weekend now. Um, it's, it has got so big, but uh, we are fortunate enough to be able to get into places where, where maybe you might not be able to and uh, hopefully some of that insight has been, has been interesting to you and exciting. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Yeah, and I would say if uh, if you've never been to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, then you certainly need to make the effort to come down to West Sussex and visit it. Uh, both myself and Mike, we're very lucky that it's it's 20, 25 minutes drive away from home for us, but it's certainly worth uh, the trip, even if you live in another country. It's it's a petrol heads mecca, but even even if racing cars aren't your thing, uh, there's something for, for everybody here. There's wacky races and a, and a whole area dedicated just to, to look after the little ones. Uh, there's certainly plenty of major motor manufacturers on display and, and making the most of um, the lack of a British motor show. It's in, in a way the Goodwood Festival of Speed has almost become the British motor show. Uh, all the manufacturers with their latest models on display and, and just trying to put on an entertaining stand for everyone. So whether it's two wheels, four wheels, racing cars, road cars, anything like that, Goodwood's got you covered. I guess my final thoughts is that uh, really in this day and age where health and safety, some would argue, have gone mad, um, you know, it's, it's rare that you can get this close to any kind of cars in the pits when they're moving around through you, next to you. You know, you, you are stood right next to them and quite often you're probably stood in the way. And the, and the familiar sound of the whistles, marshals are trying to make you move so they can bring the cars through, cars revving and on, on the way through the crowds. You know, if you are interested in motorsport, if you are interested in cars, then you're not going to get any closer than this. Whether you're stood at the side behind hay bales watching them, whether you're walking through next to them, these are are my heroes they are Jim's heroes there and I'm sure they're all of our heroes so yeah come down enjoy it and uh, if you haven't been able to I hope at least you've had a chance to to take a look at uh, at some of the content we've produced for you uh, here online and uh, and got to enjoy it too UK Motor Talk the Goodwood Festival of Speed 2018 a first take media production